Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Healings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. This episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our Southern California listeners. Our West Coast audience continues to top the Thriving Artist Podcast charts, and we recognize that the art business community in California is well known for fantastic artists, including Raul Baltazar and Melissa Cody. Now, our guest today is Mary McBride. Mary is the chair of the Arts and Cultural Management and Design Management graduate programs at Pratt Institute School of Art in New York City, an executive coach, a frequent international speaker, and a visiting professor in Spain, Turkey, India, and Russia. She's also editor of Catalyst, an online publication focusing on leadership in the 21st century. Welcome to the show, Mary. Thank you so much, Daniel. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. I want to know, uh, first off the bat, how did you get interested in design and business strategy? We don't want to go back that far, I don't think, but let, let me see what I can do. I got interested first in business strategy, but I think as a child, I was always interested in, in design. I was always the person who was taking things apart and putting them back together and making everybody else crazy. But when I left business school, my area of interest was really strategy, and I got very interested in the creative economy, the so-called creative economy, it's kind of a curious term. And that led me into work in fashion companies and companies that were, in quotes, driven by design. And then I got a call from Pratt Institute and said, do you think you can create an MBA for designers and artists and cultural people? And I said, I don't think they need an MBA. I think they need something that goes beyond the MBA and is almost, in a way, the antidote to the MBA. Well, so uh, an antidote to an MBA. Why is it an antidote to the MBA? Well, I'll give you a personal story. I mean, I, I appreciated my business training. I also was told by a friend of mine who was a musician, I was a trained actor and writer, and he said, Mary, I don't think you're going to like business school because the first thing they're going to do is take away your adjectives and adverbs. And I remember saying to him that no one will ever take away my adjectives and adverbs because I feel like I've worked very hard all my life to find voice and to find words. And that was my most treasured thing. And at the end of my understanding of business, I really feel like the best sentence I could put together was the boy hit the ball. Because business communication is very, very different from the kind of conversation that we're having now. It's non-discursive. It's very directional. You have to get to the point. And if there's any time when you can't do that, you're perceived as being fluffy and trivial. So my adjectives and adverbs disappeared. And that's when I realized that my creativity was going. I wanted to make a bridge for myself back between my creative side and my strategic side. And then I got an opportunity to build that bridge for lots of other people. I'm deeply and pleasantly amused at your pleasantly deep answer uh, about adverbs and adjectives. Uh, That's my poor attempt at grammar. But uh, maybe you can tell me what exactly is design management since we're talking, you know, about that role. Well, I I think I can tell you that because somebody reminded me that I I actually seem to have written the uh, formative articles on the discipline once upon a time because it was a very, very new degree in the United States. It's It's still, to some degree, a new idea in the United States. Most of the idea about design managing actually originated in the UK where they spent lots of money actually looking at the value of design because what happens in, you know, when you just use a very 
ordinary business mindset, you look at design as a cost center instead of a place where value occurs that can actually build in value in your relationships with your customer and your understanding of products, et cetera. So the UK really investigated this and I looked at what they had done and essentially wrote two, liter- uh, two articles, Design Management, Future Forward, and Triple Bottom Line by Design Meeting as Life Matters, which talked about what design could do to add value to business. So if I start there, when finance is pulled out of business strategy, you get very poor strategy. When accounting is pulled out of business strategy, you get very poor strategy. And what people don't understand is sometimes those things were not built into strategy formulation. When design is not part of strategy formulation and it's just part of the execution of strategy, you lose 50 to 75% of the value of design. So design management ideally is when you consider the fact that you've got lots of different functions in any kind of an enterprise, you want them all involved in the conversation from the beginning, and you want to really curate that conversation to create a consequence. And when design is involved in that, you can stop some waste, you can create assets at the end, you can make sure that the people who have to execute on your products, services, and experiences actually understand the intent behind it. We don't just make it pretty. Well, so let, let's get it down to brass tacks. You've got uh, art students that are going to Pratt to learn design management. What exactly do they do professionally after graduation? Well, I, I would just change that question a little bit because I do have art students that are going to Pratt to study design management. We have some people with background in the arts and the design management program, but I also lead the arts and cultural management program, and they also come into that program. And then the answer to your question is different. What both program graduates do is they design experiences that will engage and enliven and hopefully get people to be part of the culture and the civilization and the the conversation that we're all trying to have. What the designers are more likely to do with that is they're more likely to objectify that into building structures, into objects, into cars, into transportation, into social innovation projects. And what the arts and cultural people are more likely to do is host exhibitions and curate exhibitions where the audience is actually a part of the design and they're not passive onlookers who are perceived as not being smart because they somehow don't get it. I see. So we're using design almost a couple of different ways. You have the arts and cultural management students. Uh, and they will go on to um, put together experiences that utilize design, perhaps in an immersive way. Uh, and then you have design management students who, as you say, objectify that, uh, will go on to produce said actual experience or, or some tangible aspect of that. Is that about right? That's about right. Uh, I mean, I can just give you an example. We had a wonderful project that was done in the arts and cultural management program just as a graduation requirement, and it was called Fusion, and it was about, okay, we've got this nasty situation going on with the Mexican-U.S. border, but we still have lots of technology we can use that actually crosses the border pretty quickly. How can we use technology to create multiple interface possibilities that allow people to engage with each other and get past these political barriers and these walls that we're putting together. It was just a beautifully designed project. It's actually won a graduate student engagement award, and they actually are going to see whether or not it's implementable. They actually went down to Tijuana and San Diego to talk to people to see whether or not that's possible. From the design management uh, graduation requirement, we did a space on a lot of the property that the city has that it doesn't use, that it's not going 
to use for a while, but it will use at some point how to get in there and do something. It's not that community gardens aren't good. They're really wonderful. Um, it's just we can also use those spaces for lots of other opportunities that might allow entrepreneurs to really showcase their work, to allow artists to showcase their work, et cetera. So that required looking at zoning laws and looking at property regulations and really working. We had mostly architects on that team to see whether or not these underutilized spaces could be made vital again and be part of a community and cultural resource. Okay, so let's talk about entrepreneurs for a minute, uh, since you you bring that up. Now, you have an artistic background uh, in a, a speech in 2011 for the Professional Association for Design. You mentioned poetry and off-Broadway and so on, uh, but you're also involved uh, in, and you're involved in, a, in educating a generation of new leaders in arts and culture, but you also are involved in consulting with individual artists and entrepreneurs. So um, what makes a successful entrepreneur in your view? I think that's a great question. As soon as you're able to answer it, I think you can go right into the consulting space. Um, well, that's what I was going to do. I was just going to take your answer and go out and start something. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a combination of things. And I think we can't leave out the external environment because if you're smart and you're scrappy and you just have an idea, whether it's to bring your art into the world or to bring your product into the world, so much of it depends on things like in New York City right now, where do you find, that's why the, the, you know, the underused spaces was an interesting project, where do you find a retail venue that you can possibly afford for even a moment in time to showcase your work or to bring your products into market? Because in cities like New York, that's, that's a very, very difficult proposition. And as soon as you get it right, because most startups don't have the opportunity to buy the building, as soon as you get it right, your rent goes up. So part of being a successful entrepreneur is figuring a place to locate yourself where the, and the conditions of the ecology are supportive of what you're trying to do. You know, this idea that we're all heroes, that we all create stuff in our backyard, and the best heroes actually win against adversity. I'm not so sure about that. I think the smartest strategists and the most creative people find the place where they can thrive almost immediately as they strive. And that's not such an easy thing to do in expensive cities. Well, so, you know, I hear you saying that, you know, it's it's partly about space, uh, but certainly aren't a lot of entrepreneurs starting with the product design first, the concept, the messaging first, and utilizing for space uh, something like a WeWork, which does provide a natural uh, ecosystem or environment of other entrepreneurs who are also pushing, you know, to along the lines of startup success. Uh, I'm talking about co-working spaces, for instance. Yeah, the WeWorks, the hubs, I mean, all of those places are great innovations, and I think that they're really, really necessary. They're not for everyone. You know, they're only part of it. You still have to get, you know, part of what we do at Pratt is we work with the Pratt Center to help small and mid-sized businesses with their next step, and these are all entrepreneurs, and everybody comes essentially with the same request. I need a website. I need marketing collateral. I need a marketing plan. What they almost never think they need to do is actually look at the financial conditions of their business, the likelihood that they're going to be able to be successful once they move out of that WeWork space or once the demand for what they're trying to do becomes a little bit bigger. So, you know, entrepreneurship isn't one step. It's really thinking ahead to where you would like to be, let's say five years down the line. I know everybody hates that question, but maybe five years down the line, you just want to have sold your business, in which case starting into WeWork, working with three partners, doing all of those things, 
you organize that differently. If this is something you want to build into, let's say, a family enterprise, this is something you want to grow into an apple, those decisions need to be differently taken. Well, so uh, to my producer, Penelope Thomas, who works hard to make these shows awesome, and I, I like to think it's easy because she has me to work with, you know, but <laughs> you said to her about artists in business, don't start with your grievance or your fantasy. Uh, what exactly does that mean? Well, I think I'm pretty much saying the same thing, that starting with your fantasy is if you build it, everybody will come. Well, if you can build it, people still need to know that you built it, and you still need to be working with some kind of a supplier who can make sure that you can get it to them on time. And don't start with your grievance. Everybody's upset about something in the world. And I think what I said to Penelope, because I say it often, is it really makes me crazy when design professors and professionals keep saying that design solves problems. And it does. But that's not all that design does. It actually turns a problem into a possible opportunity for a particular group of users which means that your fantasy cannot be that you've got the best thing since sliced white bread. It'd be nice to talk to a few of the people that you think would actually use it to get them involved with your design process. Uh, you know, I think we've all seen the garage band fantasy, you know, the group of guys, long hair, electric guitars, playing in the garage that want to one day be the Beatles. Um, and, you know, obviously you got to practice and you got to start somewhere. So uh, I don't begrudge them the fantasy, but I... Uh, I get that, that the fantasy can't be a, a, a substitute. I do find that having a grievance can be a basis for a business if you're trying to disrupt or change an industry. But on the other end of that garage uh, fantasy is um, this notion of, you know, the, the, the straight line rise to stardom because your idea is so good. There is this notion of extreme asceticism as well and suffering to sort of achieve uh, greatness, that it's it's an agony, it's a slow trot, and if you're not suffering, it's not real. Do you find that that's a prevalent attitude as well, and, and is that flawed also? I would say that that last part of what you said is a little bit more true of the people who come in, let's say, to the arts and cultural management program than of design, because designers pretty much get used to the fact that, you know, whether they like it or not, somebody else has a fantasy and they have a job. Uh, so they begin to make accommodations and they end up in our program in a way because they certainly don't want to keep making accommodations that will hurt the planet and its people. So they want to be more able to set the strategies with the rest of the company than be simply told, let's make another plastic bottle. I think for the arts and cultural people, it is more of a, you know, this, this understanding of what role art plays in society is something that a lot of people talk about. I mean, Art supposed to be provocative? Is art supposed to be apolitical? Is art supposed to be the thing that brings us together? And I feel that, you know, none of these answers is sufficient in and of themselves. Art is a lot of different things. Mostly, it is about self-expression, though. Whereas design is more about what can I bring into the world that can be used by other people? Uh, you know, um, I do find that... Uh there is some sacrifice to be counted when you go into business for yourself. As a serial entrepreneur myself, I found that it means, and, and also as, as someone who um, has his own art form, uh, that 
No one really achieves greatness or success or even the thing they want to achieve, however small, by always getting to bed on time, watching all their shows, having the perfect balanced life uh, where you get exactly the right number of calories, the right amount of time in the gym. And like I say, you turn into bed on time and, and wake up listening to NPR. It just uh, it's a great recipe if someone else is paying your bills. Do you find that balance goes out the window when you're trying to innovate? Well, I, I find that that's sometimes the case. I don't think it's a good thing. I mean, you know, words make a difference. So if I'm telling myself that this is a sacrifice, that's very different than telling myself that this is a choice. I happen to be addicted to Chinese TV and, you know, I'm watching it way too late at night. And I keep telling myself that, you know, this is a choice that I'm making when I have to drag myself out of bed in the morning. And I wonder why, since I don't speak any Mandarin, I'm attempting to watch these things. But Sacrifice is something that just makes you grouchy on the inside, and I think it comes out on the outside. Not that that would be you. didn't hear you say that at all. I'm just, you know, when I hear people talking about how much they're sacrificing for their art form or for their family or because they want to feed the pup, I'm like, well, isn't that a choice that you're making? And if you're a very deliberate and strategic choice maker, shouldn't that make, make you feel like a more powerful, able person? Yeah, I, I think the difference is whether one construes sacrifice as um, full of pathos or um, one regards sacrifice as simply trading. Uh, you're, you're basically saying it's not sacrifice because you're trading. Uh, and so we're sort of into how you define it. Uh, but I, I do think that one willfully, you know, trades something in order to pursue what, you know, one's dreams and whatever that is. Uh, I think you're, we're, what we're agreeing on is... Um, you want to come from a place of abundance that it doesn't help you to come from a place of suffering and pathos. Um, it, you know, if you either make the choice or and quit whining about it, or you, you don't make that choice and you go do something else. <laughs> so I think uh, almost anybody would agree with that who's founded a business. I think we come from one of the things we do when people first enter our program is we go through this values exercise where they come up with what we call their value triangle. And those three values that they finally come up with as critical to who they are and central to who they are, we talk about exactly what you just said, that there will be moments when a particular value is pinched because you, you, know, you value freedom, but you also value your family. So for the moment in time, you're giving up a little bit of freedom so that you can better feed your family. But when all of those values begin to be really pinched at the same time or one value just begins to be pinched all of the time, that's when you know you're out of that word that you used before, out of balance, bordering toward grouchy, and certainly starting to blame everybody else for what you're allowing to have happen to you. I think people who know what their, who their, what their values are know what their values are. And so, yes, they're trading off. Yes, they're in quotes sacrificing. But what they don't trade off is what they value. Yeah, I, that I, I think is right. I, I don't want anybody. I mean, I live in New York. I think it's every New Yorker's God-given right to be grouchy. I don't think and I want that taken away from me. But <laughs> And by the way, uh, the re, for the audience, uh, so Mary is also in New York. And so that siren that you're hearing in the background, we're not cutting that from the podcast and we're not cutting it for a reason. This is New York City. There's no place to go where there aren't sirens. And so we leave in the ambiance, you know. 
of being here. Uh-huh. In a moment, uh, Mary, there'll be a knock at my door with a, a guy bringing a slice of pizza down for me. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I, I want to dig into this a little bit more. You, you talked about this. Ex- we both talked about this exchange of value. One of the things that comes up um, in even defining artists in particular as entrepreneurs is that an entrepreneur is all about exchanging value for value. In fact, powerful entrepreneurs often see this as the, the core of human ethics, um, the exchange of value for value. But do you think this fits visual artists equally as well, that they must be able to create an exchange of value? And I ask this because often the response from visual artists is that art is intrinsically valuable. Uh, and that seems to dismiss the need uh, for providing uh, personal value. I don't know. You know, you're you're really asking tough existential and also economic questions. Um, I think if you're going to produce anything for market, whether it's me, whether I produce a poem, whether we're trying to produce a theater piece, or somebody's producing visual art, creating visual art, one needs to ask: Do I really want people to read this poem, see this piece? or come in and view, come to the gallery and view my work. If you really want people to do that, then you need to add to your value the idea of creating something of value for particular others. Maybe not everybody in the world, but for a group of people that you think are worth creating something of value for or need to have something of value created for them. If I just want to write poetry for myself, if I want want to write dramas for myself, if I want to paint for myself and hang it in my own room, then that's self-expression. But as soon as you put something on your back and you take it to market, I think it's just asking either for the faithful intervention of some kind of gallery god or it's, it's asking for a miracle to expect that what you think has value is necessarily going to have value in an exchange to the other. You haven't even thought about them in your creative process. Okay, so great. Let's dig, let's go even closer to where the rubber meets the road. Um, I'm at the risk of citing Penelope again. Uh, Penelope, this is your day, um, our producer. Um, She she always conducts a pre-interview with guests just to kind of see where they're coming from. And and she gave me a nice pithy quote from your, uh, we harvested more quotes than normal from your pre-interview, shall we say. And this quote is, uh, the challenge to a small or mid-sized artist or any business involves sitting with the understanding that you either have something of value to offer or you don't, and being very deliberate about that. And if you have something of value to offer, understand its value and exchange it with those people who respect that. And that's the secret of any business activity. Uh, And it's kind of a summary of what you just said. And so my question is, is, all right, let's say the artist drinks the Kool-Aid and understands that, okay, I need to offer value or I'm, or it's a hobby, or I'm just uh, living in the fantasy land, the garage fantasy land we talked about earlier. How can an artist quantify the value of their own work, especially if they face that challenge, as you just said, of, you know, risking assuming that what's valuable to me is valuable to another person? How do they, how do they get down to brass tacks and quantify the value? Well, I think that quote that you read for me is much better than what I just said, so let's just use that. But um, how you quantify anything is really a matter of meeting the market on its own terms and negotiating. So I don't think an artist can sit anywhere and say, well, I think I should get $10,000 for this or $10 for that. I think you have to walk it around. You have to talk to people who are already in the business of buying and selling and exchanging 
you have to sometimes give things away for free because, you know, in the language of business, that's called promotion. And so you, you put things in the appropriate places where people begin to establish value by association. And I think that's, that's a tough thing for artists. It's tougher for artists than it is for designers, but it's tough for creative people in general to think that part of why it is that people are valuing you is because you do remind them of something they can relate to. You know, we're creative people. We're trying to create something original. We're trying to bring something new into being. So the last thing you want to hear is that, oh, that reminds me of something. But from a marketing and a business perspective, the customer only knows what the customer knows. And the number of people who will go outside what it is that they know to take a risk is really, number one, small. And how much are they willing to pay to take that risk? So that's kind of a long answer to a question that I think is, you know, simply put, you don't know until you know by connecting really with those people with whom you want to make an exchange and the intermediaries. There's been a lot written about creative people not being the best intermediaries for themselves because they're in love with what they do. And that's a, that's a good thing, even if it is passion and purpose. You know, I don't mean to say that's not a good thing. I'm saying when you bring it to market, you need people who understand your passion and purpose, who can help you set a financial value to it. Okay, so we're talking partly about um, cultivating the audience and the audience perspective as well. And so that leads me to a, a couple of other questions. Um, I'll ask the first one. So in the context of finding what you have that's valuable, an entrepreneur also has to translate that finding or that message into uh, a brand story or a compelling dialogue that isn't just shoving the product uh, at the end user here, use this and letting it sort of stand on its own. Um, do you think that's a requirement for artists also? And if so, do you, you have any insights in how one can be more effective at it? I, th I think it's a requirement for human engagement that we, you know, we know each other better. You and I started this interview by exchanging a few stories with each other we get to know each other on a deeper level by creating narratives, exchanging them, seeing where it is that we'd like to amend them. So I think it's necessary for everyone. It's hopefully why in art school you teach students how to do an artist statement. I just purchased two works within the last year from some of our younger students that are undergraduate students because I just love them. And I, I said, well, how much would you like for what it is that I'm purchasing? And I said, well, I don't know. How do I set the value? And I'm like, well, I think we need to talk about that. But I can't even talk to you about that until I see your artist statement. Nobody had taught them how to write an artist statement. I think that's that's really a big miss because it's not so much that that's the signage you want on the wall next to your particular piece of work, but it's your conversation with yourself about what this means to you. I mean, let's start there. What does it mean to you? And that doesn't have to be financial. And then the person who's coming to market with an understanding of how to do a respectful exchange can say, well, I had no idea that's what it meant to you. It doesn't mean that to me. Let's start the negotiation. You know, I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, we have uh, an article that I, I wrote in the educational section of the digital campus of the Clark Hewlings Fund called Nailing Your Art Story, A Case for Putting Artist Statements in Story Format. And it's basically a, a case for um, the artist statement is, a, is not your bio. It's a, you know, I had a brother named Pete and a dog named, you know, Jim. But it is uh, a place to um, cultivate and convey your brand story. So, we've sort of established that you can't just dream. 
Uh, we've established that you have to come from a place of abundance. Uh, we've established that artists are entrepreneurs and that therefore the exchange of value for value has got to be central. And you've got to construe how you deliver value in a way that's communicable um, through a brand story or a compelling dialogue. So let's take it one step farther. At the same time that an entrepreneur is going about sort of finding their audience in order to, to create this back and forth dialogue, they're also building the business, you know, the other aspects of the business, the product development uh, and so on. So it's sort of like you have to do it all. You know, you have to spend your time creating the product. You have to spend your time marketing the product. You have to spend your time uh, on the operational and financial side, uh, as you mentioned, planning out the financial future of the company. How does one do all of that at once? Well, I think unless you're one of the Avengers and you don't have the others with you, I'm not so sure you can do it all at once. I think you you walk a little, you stumble a little, you check your receipts at the end of the month and realize you've made a mistake. You try to get family, friends, and what my, my accountant calls fools to sit down with you and be part of your dream team going forward. I think it, you know, it's that ridiculous thing, but really true. It takes a village. So People who are trying to do all of that by themselves, I think that's a really risky proposition. You really, you really need people to help you, you know, and, and that's something that I don't find entrepreneurs are necessarily, you know, if you're entrepreneurially minded, you're not necessarily the person who's going to go out and ask for help. And I think that's a developmental stretch step for some entrepreneurs that I've worked with. It's like, I know it all, I'm going to do it all. My family has left. The dog isn't talking to me. I think I can pay the rent this month, but I feel like I feel good about myself. It's like, yeah, but if you called in Uncle Harry, he might be able to help you a little bit. That's one reason I really like the entrepreneurial ecosystems of, of a place like a WeWork or a Green Desk, et cetera, you know, a co-working space. And I, one of the things that bothers me oftentimes is they're often segregated into ghettos, meaning that you'll find, uh, you know, one sort of co-working facility that's um, filled with nothing but consultants, uh, all trying, by the way, to desperately to sell each other their their advice. Uh, and you'll find uh, another that is, uh, whether you call it a makerspace or, or co-working, it's, it's full of artists, but none of them knows how to um, create a Facebook page or a compelling digital message or anything like that. And uh, so it, it's kind of funny to watch. And I wish there was, you know, one could take the jar and sort of shake them up and put artists among uh, more traditional entrepreneurs and more traditional entrepreneurs among artists. Not that those are, are fierce dichotomies, but that's precisely the point. And so I want to ask you um, if you think there are things in that people in creative fields can learn from uh, a more traditional business approach, and if you think simultaneously that there are things that um, people, uh, straight-up entrepreneurs uh, in other fields can learn from artists. Well, you know, I've spent maybe too long thinking about what that more traditional business approach looks like, and it keeps shifting over time, and it depends on what culture and country and part of the ecology that you're working in. I think that both models really have to do with what business actually means, if you go to the Middle English, to offer solicitude or solace. So people think business means a lot of things, but I had to do a dissertation on it once upon a time. So I know when you go to market, you better have something that will give somebody comfort, solace, and maybe that's just another way of feeling grandiose about themselves, but you need to know what it is. We're here in the world to enable each other to feel better about being in this world and hopefully to put our shoulder to a collective wheel and make the world a better place. 
I don't see such a big difference between doing that for an absolutely commercial enterprise that I don't know is trying to do X, Y, and Z, or a more creative enterprise. I think where it gets hard to manage is when you start looking at scale, when you start looking at a desire not to understand what's going on in your world instead of really paying active attention and adjusting your strategy. But I actually think that most business, if it's done well, is creative and has to be creative. And then there are the so-called creative businesses, which somehow include real estate banking and uh, education. And that seems to me a little different from media, arts, and entertainment. But they all go together into you're either trying to produce commodities or you're trying to create value that informs, enables, and enlivens in a rapidly changing world. Well, so let me spin off with that. The rapidly changing world, one of the... You know, every everybody brings up technology, and I'm like, technology is not a change. There's been technology since man walked out of the cave and rolled a stone down the hill, you know, and and invented the wheel. But but it's specific to that realm of technology and the specific changes we're seeing. Automation comes up as uh, certainly one of the things that's going to devastate over the road trucking and a whole lot of other. Uh, industries. One has even threatened the, you know, that it might devastate the visual art world. I don't foresee that actually being that big a problem, but I, I do think it could have an impact on the design world. But automation um, is certainly, um, while we might welcome it because it simplifies our lives and we might welcome it because it, it can strengthen an economy, it certainly has some immediate um, effects for people that are in the jobs being automated. Um, and so it's a complex issue, a complex problem uh, in terms of how you construe it, whether it is a problem and who it's a problem for. Uh, so I'm not try trying to take a position on that when I ask this question, uh, Mary, but I wonder, can artists do anything about um, the future for all of us um, in terms of the rapidly automating workforce? Do artists have an answer? Well, that's the, ironically, thank you for the segue. That's the issue that we're going to take on. Well, we kind of, our last three, our last two issues of Catalyst have been designing thriving, then before that, designing inclusion, designing thriving, then making and shaping meaning. And now I think it's just building into this, all, you know, human by design augmented humanity, because I'm all, about, all for, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, everything. I'm, I'm actually my advanced degrees have a lot to do with technology. I'm not technophobic. I do believe what my technology instructors taught me a while ago is that tools that are not used in the service of life are weapons. You know, I, they didn't put it quite that bluntly. I've amended it over time. But I want to know why it is that we're using a particular tool, who bears the burden, and who gets the benefit. I think that's just a good question to ask in life in general. And artists and creative people are really good at asking that question when they're not seduced by the fact that they're the newest, greatest, you know, social media kids that have digital skills and will have 37 jobs before they're seven, when they don't drink the Kool-Aid and they just sit back and they do what we're really good at doing as creative people, which is entertain the question, why? Then we can get some really second uses of technology that can really, I think, help, help us be more deeply human in the world. Uh, but what I think now a lot of technology is, in fact, being weaponized. And politicians are weaponizing it. They're using it as a way to pit the old against the young, the China against the United States. I mean, you know, it's crazy. 
Well, I, I think there are two syllables that sum that up, Facebook. Uh, and uh, <laughs> But I like your quote better, technology that isn't in the service of life is, is, uh, uh, is, is a weapon. Your point, well, if you just take Facebook or, you know, you can pick, pick on any of the particular characters we might take on. I mean, do people ever sit around and say, you know, our theme in our program is leading as if life matters. And many times we've been challenged on what does that mean? You know, you're a sort of a, an MBA, MBA-esque program. What does it mean to lead as if life matters? It's like, think about it. Just think about it. And then walk it around and talk to other people about it. And then check your math to see whether or not you're doing it based on your own terms about what leading as if life matters. But I don't think that, you know, the companies like the one you just mentioned, I mean, do they even consider leading as if life matters? Do they consider deepening our humanity? Do they, do they ask the questions that philosophers, scholars, and yes, merchants, once upon a time, used to ask themselves? You know, what exactly are we attempting to do? So the basic definition of design is the first signal of human intention. I wish I could say that with my quote, but it's actually from Bill McDonough, the wonderful architect and writer, design is the first signal of human intention. What the bloody blink are you trying to do with electric vehicles? What are you trying to do with self-driving cars? What are you trying to do with the various things that you happen to think are cool? And why are they cool for the people who will bear the burden of other things? Well, I, you know, coming from the generation that invented Facebook, a lot of millennials think it was them. It's not, it's my generation. Um, and I can say that I, I think at some point, those involved in the technological side of development adopted a doctrine that advancement of technology is its own good and that ultimately um, by replacing old systems with good systems, we are always automatically creating opportunities for life to thrive. And I think we found that for many reasons, Facebook is just a, a great example that you can type into Google News uh, and look at the last two years and, and see that that certainly is not the case. Um, in, in at least not all of the time. And so I, I think that um, that doctrine that's kind of come unhinged from the what you were referring to as the primal questions, why are we here and what are we trying to achieve, um, is an example of uh, the Manhattan Project, for instance, you know, and, and the attitude of many of the people that participate into it later, you know, sort of we've created the monster. Uh, but Along those lines, let me pivot and ask one more question um, in this sort of area of innovation, which we're covering, and, and then we'll switch to our final segment of the show and talk a little bit about social and environmental responsibility in particular uh, in leadership. So um, th this question is, you know, we focus so much on individual artists and um, how they think, what they need to do to be effective in the market, et cetera. Um, and we pivoted a little bit. We're talking about sort of big picture ideas. But when we're considering artists as vital, active participants in their own economy and their own industry, which the old model, um, which you cited, um, the, the gallery fantasy, for instance, didn't necessarily encourage. Do you think this means that art industry leaders uh, in particular and arts organizations, for example, need to change how they plug into that ecosystem in order for it to thrive? I think most industry leaders need to first map their ecosystem of, you know, and I call it an ecosystem of decision making. And who are their partners? Who are their allies? What exactly are they trying to do with it in that ecosystem? 
I mean, that's just a bare beginning. If you're doing strategy, you need to map your, your, your action field. You know, where is it that you're attempting to operate? And my feeling about what so-called cultural norms organizations have tried to do is to define themselves as different from everybody else because they're, in quotes, in the arts. And there have been very, very good reasons for that, including funding reasons and just you know, making sure society doesn't forget that art is beautiful and sublime and necessary. But I think what's happened is it's started to separate art away from the experience that everyday people can attempt to access. And so it's become about privilege and indulgence. And then, you know, the flip side of that, about reaching out to your underprivileged community to make sure they get a little piece of the privilege and the indulgence and the education. But, you know, I grew up in a, in a place that wasn't impoverished, but it wasn't enriched. But I always knew that it was really, really important and essential to be associated and connected to things that were aesthetically interesting. And I wish that could happen for more people. And that's why I helped to lead these two programs because I'm, I believe that the people that were graduating will bring that appreciation of the essential quality, essential to our humanity, about appreciating what we're able to do. That is a, a good segue for us to talk a little bit about social and environmental responsibility. So earlier in the conversation, we alluded to a speech in 2011, and that speech was actually about the, uh, quote, the triple bottom line, unquote. What is, what is the triple bottom line? Well, the triple bottom line for that article that I wrote was easy because business understands what a triple bottom line is. It doesn't just mean your so-called bottom line, which is your your cost structure, or your top line, which is how your revenues come in, but it means that those revenues and those costs are actually related to a broader ecology of action called the planet you live in, the communities that you serve, and whether or not you'd like to keep that brand story that you talked about actually operative and credible. So the triple bottom line means, and if you read the article that I wrote, is that you know we're moving, if we haven't already, behind away from this idea of a Pac-Man-esque consumer that just digests everything you throw at them with any, without any awareness of what the costs and consequences of that particular model are. And we're moving through social media and for other reasons into this world of fans, followers, and friends. Well, your fans, your followers, and your friends, unless they're some kind of crazed group, are not very happy when they find out that you're betraying them, you're hurting their families, you're, you're spoiling their planet. So triple bottom line by design means design into your brand identity, your brand narrative, your brand story, and everything you do in your company, your po in your enterprise, your policies, your procedures, your practices, and then your products and your experiences, bake in the idea that we're in it to win it for ourselves. Nonprofits need to get money, governments need to get money, and for-profits need to get money. We do want to prosper. We also want to enable, engage, and enliven our world. So that's what triple bottom line by design means. Design into your mission, whether you're an artist, entrepreneur, or whether or not you're, um, you know, Apple. Design into your mission the idea that, you know, as Max Dupree said, leadership begins with a deep sense of obligation, ends with a thank you, and everything in between is service. So again, applying this then from larger organizations to individuals, we, we get asked this a lot uh, because some of the most compelling artist brand stories come from a sense of mission. 
do all uh, artists at the individual level, do all artists need to have a social mission instead of just a creative and financial one? Well, I, I don't think all people need to do anything. If you just have a financial mission and you have something that's delicious and delectable and won't kill people, I might just buy it. I don't think I would continue to buy it because it doesn't have that associative trail that makes me feel better about my purchase. It was just a, I really love the color purple and so I did it. But then I think twice about it and my friend tells me that they got something that also has this brand story and this commitment to a sort of beyond organizational aims theme. And I'm like, mm, I could have bought that. It was almost the same color. So I think that's what a person needs to decide for themselves. We need to decide it in terms of our personal employment, our personal businesses, the way we talk or don't talk at meetings, the way we sit on our hands and let things happen, or the way that we actually use our being here in the world to do something that we happen to think is worth doing. Okay, so let's ask one more question about organizations. Um, it seems that, you know, it, it would be almost a faux pas to call into, almost rude to call into question whether a nonprofit or a social organization has a valid social mission. Someone would say, well, what is valid? And of course you have a social mission. We're a nonprofit, we do a lot of good, but then we also hear uh, there's a particular cult in the news called Nexium uh, right now that's you know busy being dragged through the courts and part of uh, their defense is not that they didn't do all the heinous things uh, attributed to them, but simply that, um, well, we, we have a really good social mission. We do a lot of good things. <laughs> so leave us alone. You know, that outweighs these heinous things we're charged with. And my question is, as we listen to uh, so many organizations and nonprofits talk about what they're trying to achieve, sometimes it feels like there's sort of an institutional language of, uh, for lack of a better term, of fluff, a, a sort of nebulous social good um, that's equivalent to the guy standing on my porch with a can that says, support the kids here, give me a dollar. And I'm like, support which kids? You know, there's not even a logo on your can. Like, what do you, who are you? <laughs> get, get off my lawn. So my question is, do you think there's a need for organizations to consider uh, whether or not, organizations with an ostensible public good, whether or not they in fact um, generate a public good, or at least consider their messaging around it? I, I think I, I just, I'll try to answer it. I'll answer it this way. I think having a social mission is a baseline for any organization. Because if, you, if an organization doesn't have a social mission, then I guess it's got an anti-social mission. And in order to get any kind of a filing through the IRS, you kind of have to have a mission. So most organizations, I'm even ExxonMobil right now in all of its advertisements is saying, you know, we're on a social mission to do good and really make sure that the U.S. has enough energy, blah, blah, blah. So I don't even think, you know, even if you say your social mission is just to make money for shareholders, you have to do a little bit better than that, actually, to get people kind of interested in your product. So I would start with social mission as a baseline. And actually, the more robust your social mission I think the more your comparative value goes up for users who are interested in that. It doesn't grow up for, go up for the person who's just interested in exploiting or getting the cheapest price, but those aren't the best markets to go after anyway. I think I'm answering your question. Social mission is a baseline. Right. So you're saying for anybody it matters. Yeah. So if it says to me, I've done a great 
things, and but I'm fine because I've got a social mission or more what I hear from people who are in the creative fields. Well, I'd really love to do that, Mary, but I don't have much money. And when I say, well, do less and see what happens when the people – and do less and really target your market – so you know who it is that's going to appreciate what you're doing instead of excusing the waste, the excess, and the nonsense that you're doing as, well, I don't have so much money. I could tell them a hundred ways to save money, but, you know, what they want to do is what they want to do. And they excuse, you know, nonprofits. Well, we can't really be about that because we don't have so much money. Well, figure out how you can be about that and raise money for those types of things. But the idea that you're serving a community but not the planet, you're serving the planet but not a community, you're making beautiful pieces of art but you don't care where it is that your waste products go to or what kinds of paints you're using and which artists are getting sick using them. I think that those are, those are anecdotes from the last century. I, I certainly love your turn of phrase. I wonder if you can tell us, uh, just as we wind up the show, um, Catalyst, Pratt's Catalyst Leading Creative Enterprise. What's next for that initiative? What's on the horizon? Well, there's a lot next. Um, but like any entrepreneurial venture that is barely funded and done, you know, as well as we can do it, we'll see how much of it happens. But for now, as I said to you earlier, we're looking at podcasts. We actually already have added to Catalyst We've added Catalyst Learning Journey. So we've gone to Ireland, we've gone to Japan. We have this idea that when you're spending a lot of money for an education, the promise that the organization makes to support you should not end at graduation. You ought to have opportunities to reconnect with learning and with your community of learning. And so we offer these adventures in learning once a year to our alumni and our current participants to bring them to places like Tokyo or to Dublin, where we're looking at places that really actually don't have a lot of resources. They're island states with not a lot of resources, but they've got really creative cultures. What can we learn from looking at the struggles of these two island nations in next year? We're off to Spain, which, you know, if you believe what the ecologists say, Spain and Australia will be two of the bigger industrial nations that will be subject to the most disruption by climate change. So we're going to take a look at what's going on in Spain with the drought, et cetera, and also how this amazingly creative culture is still holding it together over many years of empire and other things. Then we're also going to consider doing conferences. We've already put out a case with Columbia University Press on smart cities and designing urban infrastructure. So I don't know. I, could, I feel like I could keep doing this for the next hundred years, you know, but probably not. <laughs> Everything has an expiration date. And with that, that's the perfect segue for us to say that you've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in. We are now on Spotify, so if you are not a Spotify listener already, uh, sign up at spotify.com and you can be. For more information on Mary's work, you can look her up on pratt.edu or catalystreview.net. For more information on the Clark Healings Fund, visit clarkhealingsfund.org. To sponsor our learning programs with an impactful gift of any size, visit clarkhealingsfund.org donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Mary. It's been really great having you. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much. Two.